Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Carl. Good morning. I am thankful that this is not the first time I've ever preached a Christmas sermon. I am thankful of my computer worked. And I could go back and pull up an old Christmas sermon, but I've reworked it. It's not uh, stale. Well, half stale. But uh, no, I, I don't actually like to preach sermons that I just pull out and just do because they're not fresh to me. They're not something I've really wrestled through. Uh, so I wrestled through this for an hour and 20 minutes. That's enough. Simply trust me, trust me. Um, anyway, it is great to be here. I am thankful for this congregation, uh, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, our fellowship together, and I love each other. And so we, um, we have much to give thanks for, more than we can count, as the psalm says. Let me uh, pray, and then let's get into God's word. Thank you again, Lord. You are the one. We come to worship and we come to praise. You are the one who is our life. Nothing, really nothing is of, a port, of importance, Lord, other than you. All is pale in comparison to your glory, to your sacrificial life for us. And for that reason, we have hope, we have assurance, we have confidence, we have that knowledge that we can go forth every week and live a life because you are with us. Lord, teach us this morning, even as you taught during the Christmas story that we have, uh, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, it's you, Lord. Teach us, Lord, again, the wonder that we see in the Christmas story. In Christ's name, we pray that we would glorify him. Amen. Luke chapter 2 is a passage that you have read many times. It's the Christmas story that we've read, we've seen done by children, as Jerry was talking about, the childlike faith, children that enact the Christmas story. But here it is, Acts, uh, Luke chapter 2, and uh, we're going to read the first 20 verses of Luke 2. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabitants of the earth. This was the first census taken while Arrhenius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I give you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there was born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and singing, or saying, Glory to God in the highest and, highest and on earth among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from there into heaven, the shepherds began to say to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen, seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. There's a TV commercial. I've seen it once, twice maybe. It's a commercial of a, um, of a little girl. She's opened a present. It's not necessarily Christmas, but obviously Christmas time, that's what we're going to do. And her mother walks by, and she has stopped playing with the present, and she's gotten in a box, imagining that the box is a jet, and she's flying through the house. And her mother walks by and says, I just should have bought her a box. Now, I tell you that story because we are like that. We get something special, and quickly it becomes commonplace. It becomes something we just have. It's not special anymore. Well, at first it was. The Christmas story is like that. We've heard it so many times. We've read it so many times. It's, oh yeah, Luke 2, I know that story. But we miss some of the glory, some of the wonder of the Christmas story. And so I want us to examine that again today and see some of the things in the Christmas story that you are very familiar with, but you've, you've lost your in you're not enamored by it anymore. It's not special anymore, even though it should be. So I want us to reflect on this. First of all, the shepherds. What do you, you know, what do you know about the shepherds? Well, they were out there watching the sheep, nothing special. And what happens? An angel appears. And what do they do? What happens? They become afraid. Why become afraid? Well, you would become afraid too, Carl, if an angel appeared to you. Yes. But it was more than that. Because it wasn't just the Lord. What does it say happened? The glory of the Lord appeared. It's like what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 we read, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Can you imagine? 
that God would open the heavens and you would see him sitting on a throne, exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each with six wings, and two covered his face, and two covered his feet, and two, uh, he, uh, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshing, thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, then I, Isaiah says, said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what happened to the angels. They saw the glory of the Lord. Now, they didn't necessarily saw like, see like Isaiah saw, but they saw something they had never imagined before. And so they were filled with awe, filled with fear, which is right. You would be just like Isaiah, fear, who am I that I could see the glory of the Lord? But what does the angel say? Angel gives him a message, has two parts. The first message is what? Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Which is the message I need to hear. Why? Because I, like Isaiah, know I am a sinner. I am a man of unclean lips. I speak untruth. I lie. Yes, I do. I am a man of unclean, impure thoughts. That's me. And what message do I need? Lord, I fear your punishment because I know I'm a sinner. And so the angel says, don't be afraid. Why? Because of the second part of the message. Because today has been born your Savior. Today has been born one who will take away those sins. That's the glory of the Christmas message. One that we've heard so many times. It's like, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, no, give me the box. Instead, we need to say, oh, Lord, thank you that you have done that which I needed, which was to send a Savior for me. But notice, the angels does not tell these men to go and see the baby. No, if you read it, he doesn't say that, right? He says nothing about what they are to do other than don't be afraid, I've got a good message for you. But what do they do? They go and see if it's true. They go and find out where is this baby that has been born. Because you can't resist when you know something glorious has happened. Um, Rob and Luke, uh, Lucy... I uh, got a new puppy, a golden retriever. And we had the boys, what day was it, Thursday? Was it? Yeah, Thursday. 
So we had all three of our, the boys at our house, uh, and so we knew this was happening. So we take them to Rob, to take them home, and they go in, and, Lus- and Luska says, um, we've got a Christmas present you have to open early. Oh, wow, this is great. Although the next, James, the next day, James asks, can we open another Christmas present early? <laughs> but so they go in, and of course, the dog is in a box, and they go in, oh, it's great. You know, they play with this puppy for, you know, they can't stop playing with the puppy, and even though the puppy wants to go to sleep. Why? What, what, what's the point of the story? The point is, we get excited about these new things once again. And the gospel message, though, becomes old. The story of Christmas becomes old, and it's just laid aside as if it's nothing. Friends, the Christmas story, the gospel message, is the most glorious message you can ever hear. And you should never want to stop hearing it and wonder at its glory because it is so marvelous that God would send his own son to simple people like me. And we, like the shepherds, we, like the shepherds, want to go and tell others. That's what they did. They left there, and what did they do? They went and told others. And when I first became a Christian, I can still remember, I wanted to tell everybody. I, wanted, I could think of all of my high school and college friends who didn't know Christ, and I said, I need to tell them. I want everybody to know. Why? Because it was so special to me. But that, that grows old, unfortunately. When we lose the glorious message and how special it is. Instead, we need to say again, Lord, Give me the voice. Give me, make me not afraid to tell others of how glorious the message of Christmas really is. Be like the shepherds. But let's go on. Let's look also at uh, Mary and the virgin birth. Right? A glorious message. The problem is, we live in a day and age when people doubt that message, right? There are many of stories, movies made up to mock it, where women say, I'm pregnant, I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything. It must be a miraculous birth like Jesus. They mock it. Why? Because the virgin birth is so unbelievable to our human minds. We can't comprehend how that could happen. We, you know, even when you know it's true, even when you believe it's true, you think, the Holy Spirit did what? How, how? how medically? We don't have any doctors here. But, you know, I can see a doctor thinking, let me think, I'll figure this out. How, 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 how does the Holy Spirit do that anyway? And we live in a day and age when people love to doubt the birth of Christ as being um, a virgin birth. Why? 
Because Satan wants us to doubt that truth. The Christmas story should remind us the truth that Christ was born in a miraculous way, in a way that nobody else has ever happened. And we ought to celebrate that and, and give praise for that. But Satan wants us to say, oh, it's not so important. The Lord's Supper is to remind us of what Christ did on the cross, but also to remind us that he came for that very purpose. He was born for the very purpose that he would go and die for us. But Satan wants us to doubt it. He wants us to doubt that the world was created by God. It must have been evolution, Big Bang. He wants, Satan wants us to doubt that the Bible is fully errant, that it's trustworthy, that the Bible you can really believe is true. Even in places where you think, how is that true? That Satan wants us to doubt that Jesus is really the Son of God. If you ever had a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness come to your door, or you ever talked to a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, they do not believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. They do not believe he's truly God and that's what Satan wants. But this is the problem. If we doubt that God created the world, then we're not accountable to God. He's not really in charge. He's not really the sovereign God. If we doubt that Christ was supernaturally conceived, then he's not fully God. He's just another man. He can't be our savior. If we doubt that the Bible is really inspired, if we doubt there's something in the Bible that's not true, it's like the story of the woman who um, the pastor went to visit her in the, in the hospital. It's an old story. You've probably heard it. And she said, Pastor, would you read to me from the Bible? But read from my Bible. So he picks up her Bible and he noticed all these passages that had been marked out or cut out of her Bible. And he goes, what, what is this? And she goes, oh, Whenever you said, you know, we're not sure we can really trust that verse or maybe that's not right or I just crossed it out. I just said it must not be true. But see, that's what we do. And Satan wants us to doubt that something in the Bible is true. And when we do that, then there's no reliable message in this book. As soon as we do that, Satan wants us to doubt when you take of the Lord's Supper, think today. In what ways do I doubt God? In what ways do I doubt his word? In what ways do I doubt the truth of what he has said? And pray the Lord would take away the doubt. Mary didn't doubt. She wondered how can this be, but she didn't doubt. Okay, let's go on to Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man, it tells us. If you read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, you have the story of when Matthew... Uh, learns that, um, I'm sorry, Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant. Now, Joseph being a righteous man of Israel, that meant something very special. It meant he had an obligation. First of all, an obligation to hide Mary away because she had been unfaithful. Now, he wasn't going to expose her. And go around the city and say, Mary, Mary has been unfaithful, Mary. He's, no, he's a righteous man. So what does he say he's going to do? He'll hide her away. Why? To protect her. A righteous man, he would do that. 
But the angel appears to Joseph and says what? It is, she is uh, pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does Joseph do in response? What does a righteous man do in response when he knows something that God has told him? What do you do when you read something in the Bible that you know God is saying, yeah, he's speaking right to you because he knows that's you're not living that way. He points out a sin in your life. He points out a, a way in your life where you're doubt. What do you do when that happens? It'll go away tomorrow. I won't feel that way. It'll pass. It's okay. If you're like Joseph, what do you do? You respond as a righteous man. In faith, you do what you know is right. Because as soon as Joseph said, he said as soon as he took Mary as his wife, which meant he, he took, it, took her into his home, he took her to, with him to go to Bethlehem, he is saying to everybody, yes, I know she's pregnant, yeah, it's not me. Now, okay, you're going to think it, right? You're going to say, we, we, it's, it's me, it's my baby. That's what you're all going to think because she's with me, therefore... She, it must be my baby. No, it isn't. I'm innocent, but you're all going to condemn me. A righteous man does what's right, even when the others are going to condemn me for it. A righteous man does what's right because he is faithful to God first. He trusts in God first. He says, I will do what's right, even when everybody else thinks it's wrong. I will do what's right. I'm going to, I was, well, one of the men's Bible study, you know, we have two men's Bible study on Saturday, one at 7 and one at 8.30. The 8.31 is studying this book, The Man in the Mirror, and I was convicted this week because I, uh, I read this. It's a story, it's a, it's a little illustration about a man who was doing his doctorate work, and he and his wife rented a camper and traveled across the U.S., and interviewed 350 Christian leaders. 350 Christian leaders. And he says, at the end of the tour, he made a discouraging observation. He said, I found a great zeal, a great deal of zeal for God's work. For God's work. But very little passion for God. The one exception, he said, was the founder of Crew, used to be Campus Crusade, founder Bill Bright, who wept openly as he spoke about his love for Jesus. I was convicted because I said, that's me. I am not in love with Jesus because I'm not a righteous man. I don't love Jesus above everything else. Some Football teams are playing today, and some of you know more about them. I, Becky knows I'm somewhat addicted to sports because I don't love Jesus enough. I'm going to ask you last, just think about Mary again. 
as we think about going to the Lord's Supper. When you look again what it says, look at uh, Luke 1, 26 through 38. You know what's so great about that, this passage? So the angel comes to Mary and says, um, says a virgin, well, anyway, okay. So now in the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, love, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salvation this, salutation this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall name him Jesus. But then notice Mary, verse 34, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and the wreath uh, and for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. And what is Mary's response? Verse 38. Verse 38 and Mary said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know what's so great about that story? It's not the angel. It's not even necessarily the message. It was Mary's response. I don't understand. How can this be? But Mary finally said, I am your servant. Whatever your will is, that will be what I will be. It reminds us of what Satan, I mean, what Christ prayed, right? The night before he was crucified, what did he pray? Lord, take this from me. Take this burden. Take the cross from me, right? He didn't want it. You wouldn't either. He knew how bad it was going to be. But he said what? But your will, Father, not mine. Christmas reminds us of the glory of what God's people did in response to the message that God brought to them. Mary's was one of whatever your will is. The shepherd's was, this is great. Let us go see it and tell others. Joseph's was, I will do what is right because I am a righteous man. I love the Lord. I will do what the Lord says, even when others think it's crazy. The Christmas message is one that says we are a people who have been called to a wonderful Savior to proclaim the message of that wonderful Savior and to believe in that wonderful Savior, to realize we are sinners, and yet God came to die for our sins, that if we trust in Him, Christmas will be totally different because it will be about Christ and what he has done and is doing for us more than any present we, see, receive, we will receive.
Don't let that proverbial box trap you at Christmas. That proverbial box is Christmas is about presence. Christmas is about relatives getting together. Christmas is about the things of this earth. Christmas is about the glory of the Lord coming to this earth to die for us that we could have life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you and your message came to the earth to people just like us that we could believe but give us, Father, a love for Jesus, a desire to love and know Jesus, not just a passion for the things of this earth, but a passion for you. Make us the righteous men and women that you desire us to be. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Have you been asked or have you asked the question why?